Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode number 460 for March 10th, 2016. The Jazz Session is member-supported. You can become a member today for just 5 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll get free MP3s and other cool stuff. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Help feed the birds you can hear in the background. Well, actually, mostly help the show. Everything you buy by going to thejazzsession.com slash Amazon helps the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks. On this episode, pianist and vocalist Brenda Earl Stokes. Here's the title track from her 2014 album, Right About Now. My guest is uh, vocalist and pianist and composer Brenda Earl Stokes, and it's great to have you on the show, Brenda. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, we, we, right before we started recording, you mentioned that it seems like this is a, a million years in the making. I feel like we've been s- slowly arranging this interview over the course of the last couple of years as the jazz session has sometimes been a thing and sometimes been on hiatus, and uh, I keep missing you, so I'm really glad that we were finally able to work it out. Me too. This is great. Uh, your most recent record uh, is called Right About Now, which is fabulous, and uh, I, I do want to talk about it, and I want to start talking about it by saying that it has on it a song from one of the most important films ever made, which is Gross Point Blank, and that's Pete Townsend's Let My Love Open the Door. So I first wanted to mention that just in case you're also a huge Gross Point Blank fan. That's I like, am. <laughs> wonderful. That's fabulous. Um, is that... Is that how the song made it on there? or And if it isn't, will you lie and say, yes, that's exactly why the song Sure, made. that's exactly why. But no, not not exactly why it's on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the story of how it did end up there. Um, well, it's a very long story, but the abbreviated version is we, we have a house that got slammed by Hurricane Sandy. 
And it was a, a house that my husband um, did a lot of the work on with his dad. And I watching my husband take all of his, you know, late parents' personal items all soggy wet and and watching the sort of the destruction of this beautiful house that was such a part of his childhood. I just felt so bad for him that I started to think about that song. That just song came to me where it's I just kind of felt like you know, let my love open the door. Maybe this is the thing that will make you feel better. So it was just uh, sort of sort of a feeling of helplessness I felt. And I, I felt like that was the the solution was that song. Yeah, it came out of a real place of hardship, which I mean, it's so fascinating because you can I, you can listen to something a million times and never understand the stories that are behind it, I think, in some cases. And this sounds like one of those examples. It's just There'd be no way to know unless you know. Right, exactly, exactly. But I feel like in the middle of it, I, 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 Joel Fromm, the saxophone player on it, really understood what that was all about, and he, I feel like he played the hurricane in the middle of the, the song because it builds and builds and builds, and the whole band sounds like it's gonna blow up, and then it goes back to that sort of soft place again. So they, they understood what my vision was. <laughs> when everything feels all over, when everybody seems. I'll give you a four-leaf clover Take all the worry out of your mind Let my love open the door Let my love open the door Let my love open the door To yours I have the only key to your heart That can stop me from falling apart Try today, you'll hear me say One thing that's really a hallmark of uh, your own songwriting is that you do write from your life. You're, you know, you're not afraid to tell real stories, and I think to kind of report from your life uh, in a way that maybe we associate more with singer-songwriters in other genres, and we hear less of in the jazz world. And I think it's kind of refreshing to hear someone speak very frankly about what's happening in their lives. Was that a difficult place to come to? Is that always how you've approached writing? That's pretty much always how I've approached writing. I, my very first record that I did um, was an EP, and I did it. I was, I think, I was 21 years old or something, and there was an original song on there that came from there. And and I feel like you know, there's a whole generation of us who are really coming at jazz from a place where we were raised listening to pop music and singer songwriters. So I think it's hard, it's hard to really separate that from for me. Um, that what I was listening to, you know, the Smiths and the Ramones and, and Elvis Costello when I was growing up is, is just a part of who I am. So I think my, my composing and songwriting really comes from there in a genuine place. Your life changed in some pretty dramatic ways in the years, uh, leading up to write about now. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I uh, I finally met someone nice and I got married and um, I had a baby and that all happened within the span of about, you know, two calendar years. <laughs> so it was it was a very, very dramatic change. And I, I think a couple of years out from that, I was 
feeling like I was kind of feathering the nest a little bit. I was making some transitions and some preparations in my life because I could feel that there was, I always say there's a change a coming. And, and so in the process of all of that, it, it was just, my life just totally took a 180 and I had to press the pause button on a lot of things. And I had to, I had to stop a lot of things and just kind of like, you know, be in the middle of the change. We also moved four times and in those two years. So it was, it was a pretty intense period of time. Did it make it difficult or maybe even impossible to continue a creative career during all that? Um, well, I still, I mean, I was still playing. I mean, I, I'm still was making my living as a, as a musician, but as far as my creative output, I just felt like it was the first time in my life where I can really press the pause button on that and say, you know, I know I'll be able to come back to this at some point, but for now I just want to be in this. It also, you know, I'm having a, a child. I'm not in my twenties. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. But you know, I, I've worked really hard for so many years and I've hustled it out for so many years that I felt like during the time where I was, you know, preparing to get married and enjoying my, my baby when he was first born, I felt like I kind of deserved a chance to take a break from that. So I just really just press pause and, and just kind of lived a normal life for a little while. During that break, did you ever consider not going back to the life you had had before? I thought about it all the time. I, I always called it like my, my broke back mountain thing. Like, well, I'd be sitting at the piano and I'd be like, why can't I quit you? <laughs> Which is really messed up because the, you know, I would, I would have so much to do and, and my son would go down for a nap and I would run to the piano and I'd, I'd try to play and I would, I would try to write and, you know, it, there's just so much to do. Um, you know, to be able to keep a career, especially because I, I primarily, you know, do my artistic work as a leader. So there's, there's more than two hours a day of work that goes into that. So, you know, there were certainly times where I was like, this is insane. But you know, it came back, you know, everyone told me it would and it came back. So that was good. <laughs> has it made you uh, maybe you already were, but has it made you a genius at time management to have a performing career and a family? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the time management thing is big, but but even more than that, I learned how to prioritize things. And I basically went through my life with a, a red pencil, you know, one of those like teacher pencils and just like put X's on things. And I had to let go of a whole lot of um, you know, gig things and different, you know, priorities that I had. And I let go of, uh, several teaching jobs that I had that I really enjoyed, but it was just very unrealistic to keep going. So I just, I really did a big edit of my life, which I think it needed anyway. So, so in a way my son was really, um, very helpful of him to come along and kind of make it impossible for me to run around as much as I was before. And what, what did that mean for you uh, specifically in terms of your performing career? Did you decide – what things did you decide to focus on particularly in this time of the, the red pencil? Yeah. I mean it's still – it's honestly still going on right now because there's only so much that I can do. But I, I just kind of assessed the kind of – and this is especially for my teaching because I do a lot of teaching and I'm very involved in that. And I, I looked around at the things that were kind of the time sucks and I, I edited those things out. And also, um, you know, some some gigs that I was doing or some musicians that I was playing with that were also kind of taking a toll on me emotionally or people who are more high maintenance. And I kind of I just edited all those things out and, and invited some more people into my into my life and into my work who could who could be more supportive. So that was really great. And actually, for this record, I. I relied on the help of a lot more people because I hired a producer this time, which was the first time I had ever done that. And 
it really helped a lot to be able to get the process going. And that producer is the ubiquitous Matt Pearson, right? It is. Yes. Very ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah. I think he's probably, he's probably produced about a third of the records that have been on this show, I think, over the last... Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> what Matt's role was uh, with Right About Now? Well, uh, Matt, I, I, I had heard from about him from Nikki Shrira, the I mean, who you know, and uh, she's the singer-songwriter from South Africa and, and you know, jazz musician composer. She does a ton of stuff, and I, I really enjoyed what she did. And then also Becca Stevens, one of, I think it was her second album she had done with Matt. And I, I talked to Nikki about what I was trying to do, and she had given me some really good feedback on what Matt did for her and what she thought. So, you know, I brought the music to him, and he said, I think you have more here than you think you do, because I thought he was going to send me away and say, come back in six months when you actually have something to show me. But he said, you have, you have three albums worth of material here. Let's whittle it down to one, one album's worth. So you decided so he, right from the start against the triple album release? Yeah, that was... <laughs> So like 1970 style, three LPs and a gatefold. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. With like you pull them out and there's like a picture of me like lying down. Exactly. Like a full <laughs> a full length shot. That yeah. Exactly. Well, I think like, you you missed the trick there. Like, with a with a, like a baby tiger. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to criticize. I'm just saying I think you might have missed the chance there. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It was it was it also would have cost me probably more than my husband would have. Come. <laughs> It's like not a good thing to spring on someone a couple years into marriage. That's probably a fair point. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he helped me get a sense of, of how to whittle things down. He really kept me on a schedule with everything. And then when we were in the studio, I was able to go in and really keep the focus on myself so that I didn't have to manage everything because I just at that time didn't have the brain power to be able to, to have my pistons firing all the way across the board like I usually do. So I went in and was really able to focus on my own playing and my own singing. And then he was able to do things like, say, you know, the vamp is too long or we need to do that again or we don't. So he was really amazing for that. 
the band on this uh, is full of people who's playing I love. Uh, bassist Matt Aronoff, who's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, ditto for Steve Cardenas, Joel Fromm. Jordan Perlson uh, is actually the person I knew least um, uh, from this band, although I've seen him play a few times. But will you talk about how this particular group of people got put together? Well, it was, again, that was Matt. Um, you know, Matt Pearson was was really, you know, instrumental, pun intended, um, on putting that together. And we, when we talked about it, I was, I felt very strongly about Joel was obviously Joel from the saxophone player was going to be on it because he's been on my last three albums and, and I really write with him in mind, but I, I was looking for, for something in particular and I had thrown Matt Aronoff, um, sort of out there as an idea. And then it was Matt's idea to get Jordan in. And of, I of course love Jordan's playing, but he was picked because he's really, even though he does so much stuff with singer songwriters and he does a lot of crossover stuff, he's really a jazz drummer. Like he's a, he's a capital J jazz drummer and the guy can really swing. He really knows what that role is. So it really works because there's so many different sounds that I need from someone, but all of my music is really coming from that like jazz swinging place. So that was really good. And then, you know, when Matt suggested Steve Cardenas, too, and I, of course, am like I was loving his playing. But I was like, I, you know, I don't know him. I've just have heard everything he's ever recorded before. <laughs> so I met him for the first time in the studio. Oh, wow. Uh, he walked in and I was like, you know, there's that guitar player that I like. <laughs> <laughs> and he was super, super cool. And, and he was really, really generous with his time and stuff. It, it was it was a very cool, very fun experience. Yeah. I mean, the the. Th- cool thing about this i mean it's, this band is a band of people who could not be nicer or more laid back which is uh, which is kind of lovely so yeah it was really a great experience now did i read somewhere that you and matt aronoff and jordan perlson had played in amy servini's duet project is that right yes and that's actually sort of how how we had first you know kind of kind of played together and and how i mentioned it to matt because matt pearson had an idea in his mind but we had played um, she used to do a, a singers thing a couple of times a year where she would have a, just a random bunch of singers and we just happened to be the rhythm section. So I was playing piano um, and Matt was playing bass and, and Jordan was playing drums and it was the funniest thing because it was like, oh, this is great, you know, so. Um, I thought we should do something together. And, and they both said like a couple weeks later, they got a call from Matt Pearson saying we're going into the studio. <laughs> Here's the date. <laughs> More from my interview with Brenda Earl Stokes in just a moment. But first, if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member. Your contribution of $5 a month helps me keep the hundreds of shows in the archive accessible and free for everybody. To become a member, visit thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll receive free MP3s every month as a thank you for your contribution. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Everything you buy helps the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks. And now, back to my conversation with Brenda Earl Stokes.
see, I mean, you just mentioned, and I think we mentioned at the top of the show that you're a piano player also, and it's it's kind of great, I think, to talk to someone who still does both of those things and does them both. Like, n- neither one is, I think, subservient to the other. Is that fair to say in your case? Right, and I'm actually, I, I'm a, I was a pianist first. A classical so pianist I, even, right? Uh, yeah, I was a classical pianist from the time I was like four years old until until high school. And then I, I kind of converted over to jazz after hearing Oscar Peterson play for the first time um, when I was in grade 10 in in, uh, in Ontario. And that was really what I did. So I have two different degrees and they're both in jazz piano. And I started my career as a jazz pianist. And, and that's really still to this day, I, that's when I'm really home when is when I'm playing piano. So I didn't start, I didn't sing for the very first time in public until I was in my 20s. Um, I, I went to the Banff Center for Fine Arts and, and somebody said, hey, you should sing something. I heard you singing, you should sing something. And I did. And I was like, okay, this is my thing. So, you know, it's taken a long time to get it so that I feel like it really is part of me the way that playing the piano is. Having two degrees in jazz piano strikes me as the like financial planning equivalent of having a d- made double major in maybe art history and Renaissance literature or something like that. <laughs> well, to be fair, my undergrad is from I'm Canadian, so my undergrad was in Canada, and the tuition charges over there are significantly cheaper. So, um, you know, I think my undergraduate degree for all four years was something like $12,000 or something Canadian. Right, right. (laughs) And then, you know, I I paid for my master's degree in cash because I I played on the cruise ships. And that was kind (laughs) of my, I know, I called it the Royal Caribbean Scholarship Program. Um, Please tell me you actually walked up to the college with like a suitcase full of money that you just handed to them and said, here, (laughs) give me a degree. It wasn't quite like that, no, because I I was getting paid cash at sea and there was this whole money transfer thing to get the money back. It was this whole thing. But no, I really, I mean, I I played Piano Man something like 14,000 times to pay for that. Wow. Wow. It, it really puts it in perspective because I had, I had graduated from York University in Toronto where I did my undergrad. And then after a couple of years of hanging out in Toronto, I, I just felt like if I don't get out of here soon, I'm going to be like doing the same thing forever. I just I just all of a sudden felt the world caving in on me. And I was like, I got to get out of here. What can I do? And so the piano bar was the thing to do. So I did sing along piano bar six nights a week, um, off and on for three years. I spent 19 months at sea. <laughs> wow, that's fabulous. That's... It was the most fun I ever had in my life. I mean, it was, you know, I, I was playing all night, every night. Um, I was taking requests. I had to learn how to communicate with an audience. I was singing all the time. And, and I was really learning so much about, you know, pop music, which I didn't know because I, I played about 5% jazz. And the rest of what I did was, you know, the kind of stuff you do in a piano bar. Sure. So. How did how has that uh, kind of bled into or or informed what you've been doing since? Oh well, I mean, I I was I was a real jazz purist when I went out there, and and I thought I was like, okay, everybody, who wants to hear Lenny Tristano's lineup? You know, <laughs> crickets. Sing along, folks. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was like, come on, man, when he gets to the third chorus and he turns things, you know, it's like, I know. You know, so I, I really had to figure out a lot of that stuff. And there was a big hole. Basically, by the time I started listening to jazz, I just that's all I listened to. So when I went out there, I 
I knew a lot about Elvis Costello and the Ramones and, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I didn't really know the Billy Joel, the Elton John, the Carol King. I, I just didn't know any of it. So I had to learn all of it. So living and breathing that music night after night really affected the way that I, I heard harmony. Um, you know, not having ninths and thirteenths on everything and, and, and hearing things that way. And I think, I think that shows up everywhere in, in the kind of composing I write, I do and songwriting I write. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, there's definitely some things on right about now that come much more out of that world than out of like the swing based world you described earlier when talking about the record. I mean, there's stuff that's not swinging in the, in the technical sense at all. And that definitely feels much more kind of at home in that singer songwriter world, I think. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it all came out of the, you know, the cruise ship thing really, really had that impact. Cause I, I mean, at that point, you know, the theory of 10,000 hours, I easily played 10,000 hours in those couple of years I was out there. So when you finished your life as a pirate, did you move right to New York? I did. Yeah. I finished a couple of contracts and then I decided I was going to give it a go. And I just, I just moved to New York. I found a roommate online, which was not a good idea, but, um, I found a roommate online and moved to Bedsty, Brooklyn and lived there for three weeks. And then I ended up moving in with my cousin, who's a very well-known visual artist. She lives in uh, Chinatown. And I, I just moved into her second bedroom and bought a cheap Clavinova, you know, like an electric piano. And I took lessons in piano and voice and I practiced eight hours a day and went out every night to hear music and go to jam sessions. And then at the end of six months, I, I said to my piano and voice teacher, I said, OK, so what do I do next? And they said, you should apply for graduate school. So I did. And then that was it. And so during that time that you were, you know, holed up in a room practicing and then going out at night, you were living off the the ill-gotten cruise ship gains. Is that the? Yeah, I was. I was. I had more than enough money. I mean, I tell all my students to go do something similar because I I had more than enough money to live for those six months, and I had money left over so that I actually um, I went back on the ships, and then I moved back to Toronto for three months, and I recorded two albums 
still on the the profits that I had made on the cruise ship. Man, oh so. man. Yeah, because I mean that seems to be the trick for so many young musicians, especially folks who move to New York City. It's just so ridiculously expensive that by the time they're finished working the three jobs they have to work, there's not that much time left for music often. Right. And so that's, that's, was always the thing that I had to, that, that was always for me, the code that I had to crack is like, how am I going to figure this out? And even when I finished my first year at Manhattan school of music, the first thing I did when I got there is figured out how I could get the correct immigration status because a student visa you can't work on. Um, so what I did is I got an immigration lawyer right away and I, I figured out how that I could get legal so that I could actually work. So by the time I was you know, just starting my second year of my graduate program, I was already working. I had teaching jobs. I was, you know, trying to get that together because for me, getting to the end of the two years and then falling off the cliff would would sort of make kind of make the whole thing moot in a way. Yeah. You if I just then had to go back and do the same thing over again. Right. Know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you you sound like from from early in your career, you had a head for the business side of the jazz business. I mean, the, the fact that every artist these days essentially needs to be, you know, their own self-contained company. Yeah, I, in certain ways more than other ways. I've I, I actually been working very hard to get the, the other facets of this together. But from the point of view of I have to figure out how to survive, um, I've always been able to figure something out. And, and I also have a lot of interests. And I really think of myself as more of a worker bee than I think of myself as like a capital A artist. I, I like being a vocational musician, um, not vacational, but vocational. Um, you know, really having to find a way to work in music has has for me been what's kept this whole ship afloat all these years um so that's what I did when I was finishing my undergrad I uh I figured you know I had a background in ballet um so I I sent my resume out to a bunch of ballet companies and and I had um three different jobs as a ballet pianist um lined up before I even graduated so that kept me afloat so that I could do all the other stuff that I wanted to do so I want to come back to write about now and uh, ask you to say something about uh, someone who's been on this show before, um, who is Dick Oates. He's the uh, lead alto player in the village band of the Village Vanguard, um, and there's a song on here that he wrote, but that you wrote lyrics to. Can you talk about how that came to be? I taught at a, a summer music festival in upstate New York for eight years and he was the guest artist for several of those years and you know obviously somebody who I'd heard play a lot of times but we we struck up a friendship and kind of kind of kept in touch and, and there was one night where he had called that as a song and he said you know it'd be really nice if we could do this as a as a duo 
And so, you know, in front of all my students and, and colleagues, I, I got to play this duo with him. And I said to him, you know, that's a really, really gorgeous song. Like, it really needs a lyric. And he said, well, if you can think of something, it's yours. You know, you can you can write a lyric to it. So, you know, he was very, very generous to let me do that. And, and uh, it's, you know, was magic for me to be able to record it. And it became a song called Meant For You. Will you say something about the lyrics, too? Yeah, I mean, I wrote it. It was I wrote it right around the time I met my husband, and uh, it, the the idea of it, it's just very simple and and um, very, I, I guess, kind of speaking my heart. I guess that's what it was about. You also wrote a lyric uh, to a composition by one of my all-time favorite musicians, uh, Egberto Gismonchi. Will you talk about this tune too? Yeah, I had written that lyric like several years ago and was hoping to put it on my last record, Songs for a New Day. Um, and it's very, it's very dramatic. It's very, very intense, kind of like the song itself is. And had been hoping to do something with it. And Matt Pearson actually kind of went to bat and got me the rights to the song so that I could actually write the lyric. Um, he reached out to Egberto's people and got them to say yes, where they had said no to me before. So that was a big coup and something that I really owe big kudos to uh, Matt for, for lining up. It's helpful to know a guy who knows a guy, apparently. I know, exactly. <laughs> it was very helpful. So, But it meant a lot for me to be able to have that on the record because it was, again, like a real, a very personal song for me and one that had a lot of emotional weight. And, and Matt was really able to, to help me to, to go all in, especially with the vocals, because I, I play very, I actually play very minimal piano on that. I'm, I'm singing, you know, mostly singing on that one, so... You uh, you mentioned earlier that um, you're Canadian, which first of all I'm I'm glad you mentioned so that we don't get mildly angry letters from Canadians asking why we didn't mention it. But um, <laughs> there have been many Canadians on this show over the years, and I don't think I've ever asked any of them this. So now, if you wouldn't mind speaking for all Canadian musicians, is there any kind of Canadian or even Toronto-based sound? Is there is there anything about your playing that you think happens because of where you're from 
Actually, yes, there is a Toronto thing. And I don't know how, if it's still like this up there. I mean, I, I think it is. But and my brother actually is a, a jazz musician. He's a jazz bass player over in, in Europe. And, and we have this and, and so do, you know, Gord Webster, Mike Webster. I mean, so many of these other really great um, jazz musicians from Toronto. We had real close access to the musicians who were, you know, the sort of the the establishment of of the Toronto jazz scene. So people like Mark Eisenman, who's a pianist, or Steve Wallace, the bass player, or Neil Swainson, or Don Thompson, or Barry Elms. These were all people that we had access to. And they're all really generous people and are really connected to the music, like really no BS. It's really about the music. And so I felt very much set up to learn what the what the the history of jazz was and really understand what it means to swing. And they also really promoted learning songs. So most Toronto musicians I know, if you call a tune, they know it and all of the other tunes. So I, I think that that's something that's very much at the core of, of especially Toronto musicians. You're credited as playing triangle on this record. And I think a lot of people might look at that credit and think maybe you threw it in as a joke, but actually, first of all, you're a serious triangle player because the triangle part on this record is good because I noticed it and I actually thought it <laughs> I said I wondered who played the triangle part on this because it's really done well and I think maybe a lot of people don't know unless they're fans of various kinds of Latin music that the triangle is no joke when it comes to that kind of music like it's a it's yeah. a real thing and it takes some skill it's a big part of the Bayonne and, and this was something that I did. I, I took several lessons with James Ship, who's a really wonderful um, percussionist and he's, you know, specializes in, in Brazilian music, especially he's really excellent with. And I had taken some Pandero lessons with him. And then I also learned to play the shaker egg and the triangle. And so when I wrote this piece, which is Bayonne and Minha Cabeza, he, um, you know, he had already taught me how to do that. And it was something that I felt confident doing. So, you know, when I, we were getting ready to record it, you know, Matt said, why don't you call a professional <laughs> person in to play the triangle? And I'm like, no, I can really do it. I can really do it. He's like, let's just call someone good. <laughs> <laughs> to come and, play and so when we went into the studio, I said, if you need to overdub it, you can. But he was like, OK, you're good. This is fine. This can stay. <laughs> well, you passed the Pearson so thank you test. For the com thank you for the compliment. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'll just mention that James Ship has been on this show before. Uh, folks can find that in the archives. In fact, that episode, if I remember correctly, was recorded in his minivan outside a gig somewhere in the Bronx, maybe. So I think the only episode ever recorded in a van. Uh, Steve Cardenas, who's on this album, uh, has also been on the show, as has Joel Fromm. So if you want to dig into the lives of the people um, who are on right about now, there's uh, lots to listen to in the archives. Well, we've talked about what came before. Uh, what's coming up next? What are you working on now? Well, in December, I, I was had a really busy month of, of working on stuff, and I'm, I'm working on a new um, trio, might be a quartet record of some of the more straight-ahead stuff, so I'm going to really go back to my roots and investigate like the, the straight-up swinging jazz thing. And then I'm also working on a project with the wonderful Israeli singer and composer um, Tammy Sheffer, and so we're working on um, a two voices project where we're doing some kind of like extended composition and, and exploring sounds of, of two singers. So, you know, those are a couple of, uh, things that are really, really kind of getting me focused on the next, the next thing. So hopefully I'll, I'll have both of those recorded by the end of this year. Oh, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm excited about it. 
We've been talking today with Brenda Earl Stokes. Uh, her most recent record is uh, really wonderful called Right About Now uh, with a fabulous band and lots of great music on it, and you should all check it out. Uh, Brenda, I'm so glad we finally uh, got together to do this. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. That's music by Brenda Earl Stokes from her album Right About Now. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. Oh, hush. Please consider supporting the Jazz Session with your membership. To learn more and become a member, visit thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Thanks. The Jazz Session will be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, support live music wherever and whenever you can. Then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.